Hello and welcome to the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles podcast. Each episode will bring you the latest news from the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles, as well as fascinating interviews with entertainment personalities, government leaders, and community advocates. St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles, where Scotland meets the City of Angels. Let's get started. Our guest interviewer today is Bethany Rayburn. Bethany is a St. Andrews Society member and is an art educator with an affinity for dance, theater, and classic film musicals. And our guest today is film historian Patricia Ward-Kelly. Patricia is the widow and official biographer of Jean Kelly. She has worked as a writer, freelance journalist, and as a contributing scholar for the authoritative Northwestern Newberry writings of Herman Melville. Patricia and Jean met at the Smithsonian in 1985, where he was host narrator for a television special and for which she was a writer. Soon after, he invited her to California to write his memoirs, a job in which she recorded his words nearly every day for over 10 years. Currently, she serves as trustee for the Gene Kelly Image Trust, the entity Kelly established during his lifetime to govern the use of his name and likeness. She is also president and creative director of Gene Kelly Legacy, Inc., a corporation established to celebrate Kelly's artistry and to perpetuate his legacy worldwide. She lives in Los Angeles, where she is completing the book about her late husband. Please welcome Patricia Ward-Kelly. I heard that you were interested in becoming the best Melville scholar possible. So how did somebody with degrees in American literature seg to being a research assistant for PBS? And, you know, that that little change there, it it changed your life. Um, How did that happen for you? Well, and it it was I was a I was in graduate school and fully intending, I was at the University of Virginia and fully intending to go on as a Melville person because I had had the great privilege of working with the Melville scholars who were primarily based in Chicago at the time. And I worked in Chicago, the the Melville Library is there at the Newberry Library. So I worked there and was working with them. They were re creating the authoritative text for Melville and it was the Northwestern Newberry Press. And so I came on as a research person and I think I'm named as a contributing scholar for that. And I would work on the historical notes and it was really where I always say that I'm the kind of girl who gets really excited about a semicolon because I, I, it's where I learned it was very critical to what I'm doing now because the first thing that the the one professor said to me when I arrived, he said, never trust the printed word. And to this day, I, I just it's such a it's such an important thing, because I think you pick up a copy of Moby Dick and you think that's Moby Dick. Well, it isn't. And each edition is different. And what you'll see is that over the years, uh, typesetters would type would break and they wouldn't bother to fix it. And so letters would get dropped off. Semicolons would get dropped off. Uh, Sometimes an editor would be uh, catch on to all of Melville's 
sexual innuendo and would subtly edit all of that out. And, um, and so, but I thought, I thought you pick up Moby Dick, it's Moby Dick and it isn't. And so I, it was really important because they said, you must go back to the primary sources. You must not read the things, but you have to go back. And so what my job was, was to go back to Melville's primary sources and to see how he took the material and made it his own. And I would then, by looking at his sources, I could often discover errors in the text and things that had been misinterpreted or changed. And so I read all of the old sea captain's journals that he read, all the stories of the Galapagos, all the, it was really fantastic. And I also went to all of the collections. I went to Harvard, I went to UVA to look at Melville's manuscripts. And what I then did was I would take I would compare and I could watch his creative process as he went along and would scratch something out and then put something in. And so I could also see from that where where typesetters had made mistakes and editors had changed things. And so it was a phenomenal training, much more than you would get in regular graduate school. And so from there, I was hired by a film company in Washington, D.C., to be a researcher on a film about Herman Melville for PBS. And then I was brought on as a writer of that project. And then subsequently that same film company ended up doing other projects about Thomas Wolfe and Scott Fitzgerald and uh, Ernest Hemingway and Robert Rauschenberg and Robert Penn Warren. And, and um, I was headed back to graduate school actually to complete my PhD and I thought, uh, and that's, I thought, well, I, it's time to go now. And they had one last project, which was a 90 minute television special about the Smithsonian. And so I said, okay, I'll stay. And uh, they, I was brought on as a researcher. And then eventually they ended up firing the two writers and brought me on as a writer. And the host narrator was to be Gregory Peck. And I had seen To Kill a Mockingbird, so I didn't know who that was. And then at the last minute, they said this person named Gene Kelly was going to be the host narrator. And I had absolutely no clue who that was. I, I didn't, I could not tell you, I couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman. And the, all those people on the set were talking about that thing called Singing in the Rain that was to die for. I had no idea what they were talking about because it just wasn't my world. It, I had lived my life in a library and, in the, and not going to the movies. And I certainly didn't my mother didn't keep me home from school to watch television like many. Wow. I, I hear from everybody now, like, oh, my mom would keep me home to watch Singing in the Rain. It's like, not my mom. <laughs> and, and so uh, so it was in this funny circumstance that I got tossed in the room with Jean because all of the women were at him to get a marriage proposal out of him. <gasps> so the director said, I'll put her in the room to keep everybody away. And and so here I am with this guy. I don't know who he is. And he he must have been completely amused by what he saw in front of him because I had this long, thick brown hair and was wearing a man's lumber jacket. And I mean, I was no makeup. And But we it was an amazing thing because I spent a week with him having no idea of his celebrity. And we bonded over words. We bonded over my pet studies in graduate school were etymology and uh 
poetry, and those were Jean's pet studies. So really, in this room, quoting poetry back and forth, and playing word games, and he had all these limericks and things. And oh gosh, now do you recall what books and poetry that you and Jean discussed that first week? Yeah, I mean, I remember. I mean, I remember certainly the the very first things because it was obviously. Um, one of them was Yeats' Yeats' poem, "The Lake Isle of Innisfree," and Jean didn't think that I would know the opening lines, and I did. And then, so the words came out of him. It was a natural thing. He he wasn't using Latin phrases or a French phrase or a quote or something to show that he knew so much. It was because he loved it so much, and he loved the sound of words and absorb them and we often just sit in a chair and say them over and over because he loved the way they rolled off of his you know he could hear it and so by the end of the week I was completely enchanted and oh did I mention that he was drop dead gorgeous <laughs> yeah. I, so I mean you've got this incredible man in front of you who's terribly terribly handsome terribly charming terribly witty and incredibly bright and I just by the end of the week, I was gone, but I still had no idea he was famous. So uh, we exchanged phone numbers and he ended up calling me about six months later. And that's when he asked me to come to California. And I didn't know why I was coming. He just said he had several writing projects. But as it turned out, he asked me to come out and write his memoir with him. And I never I, I thought it would be maybe a couple weeks or something. I never dreamed that that five years later we'd get married and I would end up recording him. Uh, throughout his career at MGM and beyond, Gene cultivated an image of the all-American everyman. He was athletic, a little tough, masculine. Um, the quote that's attributed to him is, if Fred Astaire was the Cary Grant of dance, I was Brandon. So um, that'll interrupt you because that that is not Jean's quote. So really? OK, so that is apocryphal. It is always gets attributed to him. But it's it was a it was actually a, a reviewer who said it and not Jean. But it's become and it isn't something that Jean would say. It's sort of uh -huh. he would never have said that. Um, wow. So it's I, I kind of it's on posters and things. But right. It, we get to correct that one here because it was not like Gene to say that about himself. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. Um, and it, it was a, somebody writing about Gene who said it. Yeah. Too. The difference between his public image, again, being the everyman and uh, this person that you knew who was intellectual, um, sensitive, romantic, what more can you tell us about him? Well, I think that's what's what's very interesting is that people see him up on screen and they say, I, I get letters from a lot of people and they say, you know, I just feel like we could, I could sit down and have a beer with that guy. Right. And, uh, and, and, and everyone feels like if they had just met him, that they would have, he would have married them, that, that if only they had, I hadn't come along, then they would have had that opportunity. And I think, that's part of the part of the great thing about Gene is that accessibility or appearance of accessibility. But I think it's also one of the things that is sort of misrepresents him because what you have 
you lose then the many dimensions of the man, you lose the complexity of the man. So mm-hmm. I think what you, you get the sense of a kind of not so educated, not, not the cerebral guy, but the guy who just kind of gets up and dances and everything and, and not certainly not the true Renaissance man Gene was. So when I do my one woman show about him, people walk out and they say, you know, I loved him before, but I love him even more now. I had no idea. They have no idea that he's this multi-layered, complex, um, contradictory in many ways, human being. And I think that's what makes him interesting, that I think that he's very one-dimensional on the screen, charming, glorious, wonderful and everything. But when you really get down to the layers and you begin to see that mind working and the the languages, the study of history, the study of art, the study of economics, poetry, politics. I mean, it, it, then then he's got a richness to him, a, a dynamism that I think is missing from the, the quote, happy-go-lucky guy on the screen. Hi. And also, I think what you miss is a sense of a man who who really cherished his privacy and and cherished aloneness in and being away from the public eye and being just the the greatest night for him is to sit at home by the fire and listen to Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole on the stereo and read a book and drink a vodka tonic and and laugh and or watch me decorate the Christmas tree or something or sit upstairs and read next to one another that was his idea of a great time. And and yet I think people imagine he's out at parties and he's just the, the life of the party. And that was very much not hit Gene, certainly in the decades that I was with him. Mm-hmm. Now, um, if we go back to the golden age of Hollywood and Metro, uh, Gene started there in 1941 at the height of the studio system. He became part of the celebrated Freed Unit, which produced the best of the best musicals at MGM during his time there. Um, For those who are not film buffs, can you tell us a little bit about the Freed Unit and Gene's role there? The Freed Unit is was was, as you say, quite exceptional. And I think uh, Gene and Vincent Minnelli were very uh, important in building the quote freed unit because mm-hmm. Minnelli and Kelly came out from New York and they brought with them a lot of the great talents. So the, the these people kind of began tra- Walters and you had the Betty Comden and Adolph Greens and the uh, all these extraordinary people starting to come out to be part of that unit. Mm-hmm. And Freed was open to that, which was great. And and there were many other great producers there. You had Joe Pasternak. Um, you had other people doing things like Anchors Away and, and wonderful stuff and very, very tuned into Gene. But the Freed unit, uh, Freed's group, it, it, what was amazing was that it was this extraordinary repertory company basically under one roof. So you didn't, ha- nowadays, people always say, well, why don't they make musicals now? Well, well, you can't because it's too expensive and it's too difficult. But there you had under one roof, you had the composers, the arrangers, the dancers, the choreographer, the 
the uh, director, the writers, and they could go from one cubicle, they could go cross over and meet and Jean would be going into the MGM Fallberg building and Irving Berlin would be coming out and they'd stop and talk about the American Paris Ballet. And, and it, it was this, you can imagine this very heady atmosphere of creativity. And so Jean could sit down and work with the arrangers like Roger Edens and, uh, and Saul Chaplin and Connie Salinger and, and, he could then go to the rehearsal hall and he'd have them on the piano and he could take what was in his head and, and start to work the arrangement um, with them and then go and record the music. And so all of this is happening. It's just, it's just this dynamic environment of creativity and brightness and very just exciting. I mean, you can imagine what was going on under that roof. While working in Britain, Jean and Arthur Freed decided to go to Scotland to scout film locations, sort of like what they had done for On the Town. So um, what can you tell us about Jean's trip to Scotland for Brigadoon and their intentions for the film? I think in those days it was quite glamorous and the, the dining cars and the things and you would go and sleep and then wake up with the beautiful uh, hillsides of Scotland. and. Gene came into the train station in Glasgow and I have these glorious photographs of him. And he's, again, I just keep coming back to his drop dead gorgeousness, but he's so, he's so great. And he's in his Irish caps and he's in his overcoat and, and he stayed at the Grand Central Hotel there and, um, it, and then set off uh, and had a map and set off uh, with Arthur Freed and really fully intending to shoot Brigadoon there and found all kinds of wonderful locations for it. And I think um, Jane, as you probably have read, always saw it as kind of a John Ford Western that mm -hmm. you would literally have these clans coming over the hills. And, and he, he, I think he really felt that the, the choreography would be amazing for that. And, and so they, there's a lot of mythology about it. You hear things that, um, but Gene did want to do it and Freed did want to do it. But then by the time they got back to the studio and studio was cutting back on all the budgets. And they even then looked at Gene and Manelli looked at Northern California spots and found places that would work and, the, and they couldn't even do that. So they crafted it all on, on stage and the, the sets are the backdrops are quite phenomenal. I mean, they're quite beautiful. They are. And I think what's interesting is that I always, what you read in biographies, which I encourage you not to read, <laughs> there's very little that's accurate in them. Uh, yeah. But you read that Jane did sing in the rain and then it was this grand spiral downward and, and Jane never could understand that because he said, I, but I did Brigadoon and that has two of the best pas de deux that I ever did on yes. film. Um, and, and, and I think, as I started, I always thought, well, people, the biographers and film historians put put Brigadoon down. They kind of say it's a less than. And I so I was reluctant to even start posting about it on social media. And then I started posting about it during COVID. And it was really interesting because people love it. And, yes. and 
they connect to it in a way. And I think particularly during this time of lockdown, there was some sense of this kind of magical world that only comes around every hundred years. And, and this kind of need for some kind of magical story in our lives. And that realism wasn't necessarily all it was cut out to be. And yeah, there's some funny scenes with, with some of the stuff and the hills and things, but but there's great beauty in it. And I was really happy to read that the people got that and the music. Yeah. I mean, what better learner and low and right. and um it wasn't originally a dance picture. I mean, that's the thing is that you it it's a singer's work on stage. It's not right. really dance. So Gene had to really work to figure out how do you convert this to a vehicle for a dancer and make that the thing. And, and the, the beauty of Gene and Sid and Heather on the Hill, I mean, it, it just takes your breath away. And so I was really glad. I, I'm glad that people are smarter than the, the, the critics in a way. I think that, I think people get stuff. When you talk about how quickly he learned all of these different dances and how he he studied them and, and just kind of picked them up. My question is what was his relationship with actual music itself? Because it seems like that would go so hand in hand. You're, yeah, well, he would give you a big hug right now because <laughs> that's the thing. That was the thing is that Gene, Gene knew music and understood music. And, and that's why he was able to do what he did when everybody in Hollywood said, you can't do this, you cannot dance with yourself in, uh, in alter ego numbering cover girl. It's impossible because you can't dolly and pan in double exposure. And he said, I, I can. And the reason he knew he could was that it was music. It was, he would connect the movement of the camera to the musical beats and he would time it. So he, he had to hit his marks, which were counted off in musical beats. And the camera, his assistant stood behind the camera and counted the camera off in musical beats. And then it was in sync. And that's how you could do the animation. You could do what he did that was so revolutionary that nobody understood. And so it was all connected to the music. And so that's a very sophisticated thing because most people don't grasp that. that the, and <clears throat> one of the questions I asked him was what came first, the music or the dance? What what comes first? And he said, generally in classical ballet, the music starts. You take the music and then you put the dance on top of that. You make it fit the music. He said, I started generally with the dance and then I would work with an arranger to make it work with the music. And so it was the dance that came first and the story, the narrative of it that that propelled it and then the arranger helped him to make that, to tell that story. And then it all came together, but it's all connected to musical beats. And that's why it's really funny because people call him a perfectionist and all of this and say, no, he was a professional and the precision required. Right. Extraordinary because he knew if that camera didn't hit that mark at the right time and he didn't hit his mark, you have to do it again. And it's just a waste of time and money. And and the camera operators and the people moving the dollies and things, they didn't have an understanding of music and musical beats. So that's why the assistants would stand behind and count one, two, three, four, go and push 
and stop it. And they put, actually put a safety pin in the sprocket of the camera, the old Mitchell camera, so that when it rolled around, it would, would end up and stop at the right spot. So it was this very, uh, very coordinated effort. But, but yes, it's all, it's all in the music. The only time that he said that he ever kind of started with the music was, was with the ballet. So with American Paris Ballet, he had this concrete piece that he had to work with. And, but that, that also required arranging. It was Saul Chaplin who did that. And Saul Chaplin said it was akin to arranging Beethoven. I mean, you come in and, and it was very kind of, you just don't touch this stuff, but they needed to, in order to, uh, you'll hear the American Paris ballet in the film is different from the original in that, certain strains continue throughout in certain, for example, the the pompiers, the firemen who come through, that becomes a repeated phrase so that people right. know they're marching through and they come through with that same music. So, but otherwise it was generally the, and very often the arrangers would give Gene what he needed to get into the music so that he wasn't just coming out and bursting into song because he, it was so unnatural if you just kind of come out on stage and go, ah, you know, it, yeah. people think, why is he out in the rain singing? You know, what is that? And so it was the arrangers who gave him the little intros and things that would lead him in that get, made people accept, accept the disbelief of, of what was happening. Well, in an interview with the Scottish newspaper, you mentioned that Jean incorporated Scottish dance steps into the most iconic dance of, uh, of course, uh, singing in the rain. How how did that come about? Well, again, he would use, um, he always said that, um, he, he always said that the sing in the rain number was just a simple Irish clog dance that anyone can do. Uh, and I think most people think they can do it and they do go out and do it. And little kids, little three-year-olds do it and do a pretty good job with it. But it's, it's, it's looks so simple and yet it's kind of, it is kind of a sophisticated mix. And you do see some of the uh, Bill Robinson, but you also see the, the crossing over on the sidewalk and is going over the edge and the crossing steps and things. So he's, he's, it's it's quite an a, a you, you see a lot of very varying tap steps and then you do see the the Scottish uh, kind of crossing dance and things so he he sneaks in all kinds of things and as I say I'll, I'll read you some of the just the words on the page on his uh, score for the ballet it's phenomenal what he goes through from one thing to the next so he. He had this facility that he could he could move from one form to another effortlessly. It wasn't it's not clunky. You don't see anything yeah. in there that goes like clunk. Oh, just went from an over the top step to a, a a Scottish sword number. No, it's like you just kind of you don't even notice the steps in a weird way. I mean, I don't. I think a lot of people don't even think about it. They just, it's, they're so caught up in the joy of the movement. Okay, so um, you have mentioned towards the end of his life, Gene was working on a project about Robert Burns, uh, the Bard of Scotland. So um, 
Can you tell us how he envisioned it, how far along it was before he passed away? Well, it was it was a project that obviously came to him, and it was this fellow David Guest who uh, oh yeah produced it, and he had brought in uh, Anthony Perkins, and uh, it was a it was a the writer was a lovely guy, and I'm just missing on his name right now, but the guy was going. Uh, I want to say Rosie was his last name. And uh, it, so I, I think it was it was a great idea, but it just, uh, and Jean, I remember getting all of the Robert Burns books for Jean because whenever he took on anything, it was, it was like, it, he didn't do anything in small ways. You know, if he wanted to read, he'd say to me, I, I'd like to reread all of Charles Dickens and then I'd have to go and get all of Charles Dickens. And then he'd say, I'd like to reread all of Evelyn Waugh. I'd go get all of it. So all, I have all of the Robert Burns here in the collection because he just devoured it. And I think was, was very excited about the possibilities, but you know, it was very hard. Just try to bring in Michael Jackson, David Guest, Anthony Perkins. It was a, it was a, um, it was kind of one of those things that I think just it's very hard to get off the ground again to get something like that off the ground outside of the studio system. And it just all it just all kind of fell apart. It just never came to be. But but I, he would have loved it. He loved Burns. And the, again, the romanticism of it. So mm-hmm. but I, I it never happened. I, I have the notes for it here, but I don't I don't know. I kind of doubt anybody will pick that up. I don't think um, I, I, I don't think I don't think get David Guest is in a position to do that. And <laughs> I know Hugh Jackman. It took him ten years to get Greatest Showman off the ground. So everything is very, very. It's so hard, and that was what was so. Gene wanted to do Frankie and Johnny with Michael Jackson, and we went to Michael Jackson's house to talk about it. And Gene, it was an incredible night where Gene. Michael stood up and recreated all of Gene's numbers from Gene's television specials and did them I absolutely spot on, even the hat and everything. And and then Gene stood up and did it was like a challenge dance. And Gene got up and did the numbers, the the cakewalks and things that he thought should be in Frankie and Johnny. And I was sitting in the middle of them just kind of going, I, you know, those are the moments you wish you could record in your mind everything I tried to. But um, but then it just became there are too many handlers. There are too many too many this and too many that and too much. I, I think also I think ageism kind of comes into play because I think that uh, there's a sense that there was a sense that Gene was old. He, he's in his eighties, seventies, eighties. He can't possibly have a contemporary idea. They forgot that th- during his entire life. He was always ahead of his time. You know, he right. was always looking forward and innovating and creating things that had never been done. So he wasn't, he, and he never wanted to recreate what he did. He wanted to do something new. And so I think they really missed, I mean, because that was to have music with Quincy Jones. And I mean, it would have been fantastic. Yeah. But there were too many managers and handlers and people who thought, no, you know, let's go on, make the next blockbuster bad or something which they did and aside from your work on gene's biography 
You have been doing a one-woman show, Gene Kelly, The Legacy, where you show his film clips. You have The Variation, which is Gene Kelly, A Life in Music, with film clips accompanied by the live orchestra, as you've mentioned. Uh, you discuss his life and career. So how did that come about? And how did your collaboration with Royal Scottish National Orchestra begin? It all started I mean, with... Jean, what would have been Jean's 100th birthday in 2012. And Jean was so specific with me about how he wished to be remembered. And as I've said, it was for being behind the camera and for changing the look of dance on film and for creating a particularly American style of dance in an American costume. I mean, you look at, look at how he changed the look of the dance. So you don't, you didn't see that before. You didn't see a guy in khaki pants and a sweater and a cap and a scarf. And uh, so he had, he had really given me that. He said, you know, that was what I was to do was to get that out there if it was possible. And so when Usually the Academy of Motion Pictures for what would have been a legend's 100th birthday, they usually had a kind of tribute to the legend and they were extremely well done. I, re I remember I went to one for Jimmy Stewart and uh, but very often it would be kind of the people that were left. It would be people who might have worked with the person or <clears throat> and sometimes you got some of the mythology kind of woven into some of that. And I thought, well, here's an opportunity to present Gene as he wished to be presented. And um, because he had specifically asked not for, to have a memorial service of any kind. Um, so I respected those wishes. And, but I went to the Academy and I presented this idea. I said, I'd like to create the evening. I'd like to present Gene as he wished to be presented as, as a creative person. And they agreed and really gave me carte blanche. And I, I, I really credit them because, and people say, well, how long did it take you to write your show? And, and I say, well, I wrote it overnight. And, but, but I, I wrote it overnight over two decades. You know, right. It's the kind of thing that, I mean, it was in my head for so long. And, but this was an opportunity to, to just get it out there. And I literally did just write it out and I went in and presented it to them and they said, okay. And, and so we premiered it at the beautiful Samuel Goldwyn Theater uh, of the Academy in 2012. And it was, I think it sold out in probably 15 minutes or something. It was um, really amazing. And there were some elements in it that, that I don't, take on the road with me for example justin timberlake was uh, i put he introduced and actually hugh jackman gave me a cold open from the set of les miserables and then justin oh. timberlake came out and and so there are a few of those elements that i don't take with me on the road uh i'm sure i would sell out in five minutes if i did but, <laughs> uh, but the uh it was it was like it, oddly it was like a coming out party for me uh it was because prior to that, nobody, people wrote me these notes and I know they meant well when they wrote them, but they would say, you know, we didn't know you could do anything. We didn't know that you could speak or you could write or you could stand up and talk. You know, I mean, they, and they wrote it in a nice way, but it was like, they never saw me. I was just the person standing next to Jean. I wasn't, I wasn't out talking. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't even overtly writing his memoirs. I was just behind the scenes always. And often 
I mean, people will say to me, they'll say, oh my gosh, we had dinner with Jean at Spago restaurant. It was amazing. And I, and I'll say, yes, <laughs> there were four of us. I was there. You know, it's a lot of people came up to me after that. And I got a lot of mail after it uh, saying that they, they had no idea that Jean did all this stuff. That they had no idea he created it. They had no idea he directed. They forgot he directed Hello, Dolly. They forgot he w- created the first time that he, he danced with himself and that he danced with Jerry the Mouse. I mean, many of them, some knew it, but they didn't under- know that he mechanically understood and, and what you were saying about the connection with the music and everything. So I, it was just kind of a journey into his heart and mind that they had never experienced. They loved him but they didn't know him. And at the end of it, it, it goes into the end of his life and his death and the aftermath and how you begin to deal with grief and, and loss. And I you know, literally unpack his belongings on stage. And so, and you hear his voice singing uh, just this pristine recordings of him. And so it was a way to introduce, kind of introduce him to people who didn't know him and reintroduce him to people who thought that they knew him mm-hmm. and loved him. And so it just kind of took off like Topsy that first night, I think though was, I think it ran about four hours with no intermission. <laughs> it just kind of went on. It was, we had, we had a few other people in there. Natasha Kinski came in to talk about how uh, he taught her tightrope walking for one from the heart. And uh, we had, it was, it was just kind of, magical but it was it was it was exceptional it was very long but nobody seemed to mind and then so then afterward i i i took out the all the uh, the, the extraneous wonderful elements uh, like justin timberlake talking for 20 minutes and and it became a two hour and 20 minute show what without intermission that i've taken on the road since 2012 and it's, I am going to Scotland with it on September 5th. It'll be at Inverness and with Eden Court. And so it got me up there into Glasgow. And of course, I'm, I'm very good friends with Christopher Hampson, who's head of yes. Scottish Ballet. And you've had the opportunity to chat with him. And I think you adore him as much as I do. He's yes. just brilliant. And talk about a visionary. And Christopher and I just both happened to be in Paris before the lockdown. And we were both going to see Crystal Pite at the Paris Opera Ballet and we were going up the stairs and I said, oh, by the way, Jean did a ballet here and to Gershwin's Concerto in F in 1960 and you should do it. <laughs> and so I, he responded right away and, but he said, you know, I think it's a great idea, but we really couldn't look to that till maybe 2024 or something. And then he called me in January and just said, I, I'd like to start now. I, I think this is a perfect time and we can start working on this during the lockdown and they, we can start getting the designs and the costumes and everything ready. And you and I can start working on the choreography, which I just happen to have Jean's handwritten notes for here oh. on the floor. And so uh, Chris and I got on these long zoom calls where he had i had scanned um had had scanned the 
entire score that I have that was saved from Gene Spire. It's singed, but it was saved. Oh, wow. And so he's uh, looking at it on his computer. I have it on mine and we're going through it because Gene's handwriting is not legible generally. <laughs> he, he was good at a lot of things, but that reading his writing and it was a cryptic. He never had a formal dance notation like Laban or anything. It was his own little shorthand that he had learned in Pittsburgh, writing down all the acts very quickly. He had a shorthand of crossover and how to write that as a times two and and things that only he said only no one else can read this only I can read this well so mm-hmm. Chris and I started going through this in the pages and so and Chris is like what is this and going and so what I what we began to realize is okay here we have on one page um fuete pirouette jazz walk corkscrew step kick Another page, bandy twist, knee pops, kick turn, Susie Q, drag tango, facade, jeté, jean, which means do a jeté like jean did them, um, dehors piqué, glissade tour jeté, step step arabesque, balancé, pas de basque, chassé, glissé, Jesus, Jewish wedding, strut, strut. Charleston, Lindy, and so as we're going through this, we began to decipher it and pulled everything, and it was this phenomenal, it was like taking me back to the Melville work, because this is what I did with Melville, is I would follow Melville's creative process, and I'd go, oh my gosh, he crossed out that word and put that put that word in, uh-huh. and aging, crossing something out, or a question, maybe this will be a phrase. And so Chris digested all of that with me. And then he has incorporated that in the kind of new capsule that is going to hold the original ballet. So now it's it's the original ballet, but it's it has a this kind of prelude that Chris extracted from Gene's notes by taking some of the things Gene was working on and trying and experimenting and things that he uh, then took further and things like that. So it's wow. he's bringing all of the, it's all gene that you'll experience, but it's it's gene's creative process. And then it's the ballet itself in this newly encapsulated thing with Les Brotherston doing the sets and costumes, but with a kind of nod to the original creator, this man named Andre Francois, who was again revolutionary because he was, had never been used to create the, he was an illustrator for punch and he'd never been used as a designer for the Paris opera. And so Jean's bringing in, Jean's the first American born choreographer to premiere a work at the Palais Garnier. He, it's the first time jazz music is heard with the Gershwin concerto in F. And it's the first time Andre Francois's extraordinary sets are whimsical things. They're boats up in the air, they're thunderbolts, they're, all this stuff going on so so what's chris doing with it that might make it a little bit different what's what's he doing to transition it to starstruck now well i think the the thing is that again it's it fits very much with jane's thing of don't don't take what i did and imitate it go beyond and so 
as Chris said, we don't we didn't want to leave it sitting in aspic. You wanted to take it and and what was revolutionary in 1960, I mean, walking into a theater and suddenly hearing Gershwin just blew people out of their seats. Well, now that isn't so right. unusual. So Chris has kind of crafted this way to bring people in to kind of almost seduce them into it before you get to the that big Gershwin. And so the, the Gershwin then will have the impact that it had but it'll be in a, a different presented in a little different way. And then, and then Les has created a way of kind of referencing the 1960, the glamor of the, you know, a black tie event at Palais Garnier and all of the glitterati of Paris, all of the top stars there and the beautiful people and the beautiful uh, and then everyone moving into the uh, other room, Eugene is presented with the, the Legion d'honneur at the end. So he's created the, given the, the presentation that meant so much to him to be acknowledged by the French for that. So I think Les is, Les is going to give people a little sense of how, how, the impact and the, the of the 22 plus curtain calls and how this just shook the chandeliers of Polly Garnier's. I think they're very astute. I, I mean, it's a great team. It's a brilliant team. I, a very respectful team. It's a team I trust. I mean, I've wanted to do this for 20 years. This has been 20 years in the making for me. I first went to Paris to look at the Bibliothèque, to look at the Marquettes and study and, and talk to the uh, Claude Bessy, who was the original Aphrodite, and talk to Andre Francois on the phone. And uh, so it, it but, but I, Scottish Ballet is the right place for it. I, I needed to trust somebody. I needed to be able, in order to allow someone to go beyond, I needed to trust that company. And I needed to cr- trust Chris and Les and the entire team. But th- those two in particular, I've got to wear my hat that kind of protects Jean's integrity, but I have to allow it to move and let these two creative artists move and do what do what they would do if Jean were present. If Jean were here working with them, let let them explore that. I wish he were here. That would be the best thing for this because you know I I only know. I know what I know, but he he lived this. He lived these words. He lived this movement. This was part of him. It was is in his soul. Um, I'm not a dancer for sure, and so, but I think it's it was trusting them, and then also their narrative ability and their perform acting ability that they realize how much of this has to be conveyed in the face. And one of the ballerinas was saying, "I hope we can take our masks off because she." She misses being able to convey, and and you don't see a lot of that done very well by a lot of companies, but they're very good at that. And then about the movement telling the story. So I think I think um, I'm 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 ecstatic, and I'm ecstatic that we'll be able to open up to do it, and that I can get there without going into ten day quarantine, and and that they're going to film it, so it will be part oh, of. Wow. Their, yeah, it's going to be filmed. One last question before we let you go. Um, 
when can we expect to see your biography of Jean in our local bookstore? Boy, I well, and and I think memoir is probably better because it will not be a strictly chronological biography and certainly won't encompass everything because that's been done. It hasn't been done well, but it, it isn't, I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to do kind of an extension of what, uh, almost a supplement complement to the show to take you a little further into who this man was. I, the writing is not difficult at all. It comes very fast, but I just, I had some distractions and now I, I need to spend more time in the archives to get things a little more organized and then I can just kind of lay it out. I thought I would be further along now, but I hope to get back to it when I get back from Scotland. Um, but then I, I may be back on the road again. So it'll, it, it's time. I mean, it is, it's time. I need to get it done and I will try to find the openings because I, I'm not a good person. I'm not, some people can write when they're on the road and doing stuff, but my, I, I need to kind of be here. I, too much of the material is here. Uh, and I, so I, I write as I go, but I really want to start this and write sequentially through it and tell the story. I want to, it's time to do that. And I'm kind of, you've probably seen in the uh, online, I'm kind of testing the waters with things. I mean, I've, I, I've become much more personal. Originally, years ago, I did, I would just post a picture and a date and say what it was. And then I started kind of sneaking out to test and see would people, was it okay if I even used my voice? I thought people might say, we don't want to hear from you. And it's been quite the opposite. So yeah. I, I, and to allow the kind of vulnerability and the kind of tenderness and things, it's been really helpful. It's been a real guide to what people want to know. And same thing like with the Brigadoon. I mean, you don't, you trust the people and, and it's a lovely group. I, I really feel, um, I feel like it's a very valuable uh, thing for me. So I don't know, but I'll, you'll probably hear me screaming from Los Angeles or you'll hear my mother screaming from Colorado when it's done. It's like, uh, you know, because you can't just keep talking about the book, the book. But I, you know, I have to keep like the ballet. I didn't expect. I, so I thought from January on, I was full on working on the book. Well, no, this little thing called the ballet came up. So I, I just think you go you go with whatever that flow is. And so now it's the one woman show, the symphonic show, the ballet, I hope is the book. And then there's a second and a third book that will come. And then it's the uh, virtual collection that will go around the world. And uh, that's just the plan. So I, I just have to live a lot longer. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles podcast. For more information on the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles, visit www.standrewsla.org. And don't forget to like our Facebook page, Instagram, and YouTube channels as well. Have a great week, and we'll see you next episode.